Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Janice Lee, partner at PwC Australia. In this episode, AG and I had a wide-ranging conversation with Professor Peter Shergold about how an economic historian with a focus on American studies came to be Australia's preeminent public servant and then went on to a range of not-for-profit, academic and civil enterprises. We talked about his breadth of unfinished business in government and reform and how that has translated into a next round of thinking about Australia's preparedness for future crises and into the program of infrastructure for Western Sydney University. This discussion was unapologetically wide-ranging. It went well beyond infrastructure into the next generation of policy challenges that Australian governments will face. I hope you enjoy it. Peter, it's so lovely to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really pleased to be here. (laughs) We thought we might start with just a little bit about you. Um, And you've been in public life for so long in Australia, but relatively little is known about, you know, when you came to Australia and why and, you know, your migration story, that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit about you, like where you were born, where you grew up? Yeah, by, by all means. So uh, I was born in a little village in Sussex in England called Crawley, which rapidly became Crawley Newtown and is now regularly cited in a book that comes out in the UK, which is... Uh, Britain's 50 crappiest towns. (laughs) But I was born before it became crappy. And my dad was in the Navy. Um, He was a sailor and then uh, uh, became a chief petty officer and then an officer. So I moved around the UK every two and a half years. So I saw a lot of remote UK because he was in the fleet air arm and it was uh, on airfields. Um, And then I went to school, a boarding school in Petersfield, which was in Hampshire, and then went to Hull, University. Um, I was. It was a bit of a, a bit of a surprise. I wasn't a great star pupil at school. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. But somehow I got to A levels, and uh, I thought I was going to Watford College of Art to study advertising writing. And then, really unexpectedly, from Hull University, got an offer because Hull University was a bit like Western Sydney University. It was. Uh, a university very much, you know, focused on uh, what we would now call, I suppose, low socioeconomic families. And uh, I went there and it changed my life and it changed the way, therefore, I looked at education. And I, believe it or not, studied politics and American studies at Hull and then went to uh, the United States, the University of Illinois, to study history, went back to London School of Economics to do a PhD in economic history And whilst I was there, uh, because my professor knew a professor at Uni of New South Wales, got an offer of a a lecturing job. This was 1972. Mm. And I can remember the telegram arriving and it said, job offered $6,280 a year, (laughs) three-year contract, return economy class airfare. (laughs) Believe me, if if you're a PhD scholarships, this looks like more money than you could ever imagine. So I came... I thought I'd stay for three years and here I am 50 years later. So I did 16 years as an academic and then again, life is full of fortune and serendipity. I'd been doing quite a bit of work with ethnic communities 
in Australia, starting as an academic but getting more involved in their community activities whilst I was lecturing. And uh, Bob Hawke, when he was Prime Minister, decided to set up an Office of Multicultural Affairs in his department. And I was invited to apply and did. And again, I thought, well, this will be a nice two-year, three-year break from university because I'd been there 16 years at that stage and uh, then, of course, stayed for 20 years. And then after that, now I have this wonderful uh, portfolio career. (laughs) When you came to Australia, did you know much about it after spending so much time studying American politics and American economics? No, I (laughs) actually knew very little. Of course, I had often travelled on the London tube and there were always these little adverts to migrate to Australia for £10, you know, the £10 pom. But they always starred these sort of well-built bronzed Aussies striding down the beach at Bondi. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that's really probably not my scene. I'll be one of those ones who you know, get the sand kicked in my face. So I hadn't really known much about it. So no, uh, it was a pure fluke that, as I say, my doctoral professor uh, was in contact with the professor at the University of New South Wales in economic history. And he said, I'm looking for an an American, an American economic historian. And so I came to Australia to teach American economic history. Then when I got here, of course, I started to do much more teaching in Australian economic history. And just before I went into the public service, um, I did quite a lot of work on convictism, convict as a labour system rather than uh, a system of punishment. In a sense, that the arc of that story is interesting in that Australia is a... Um, it's a bit of a grab bag of some of the American system of, of government mm. and politics and the, and the traditional Westminster system. Some might argue it's sort of half pregnant on yeah. both. Did, was that useful having the sort of... It was mostly... Of- well, it was useful in a number of ways. Academically, of course, Australia was very different. But if you'd studied the history of the United States, uh, there were parts of it which were quite similar although the United States had a much longer colonial history, they were both, of course, what were called, at that time, countries of recent settlement. Now, of course, we know better. And, of course, both Australia and the United States share that history of dispossession of uh, Aboriginal people. So there was quite a lot in common. And more than that, when I came to Sydney, I thought there was quite a lot of common with uh, California lifestyle, uh, I thought. So, yes, that bit was... It was really when I went into the public service uh, and and particularly once I became public service commissioner where I had to speak on public service much more and then when I became the Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which is the notional head of the Australian Public Service, uh, I did much more talking on public service and then came to see the distinction between the Westminster system and the Washington system. Uh, And I have to say, on the whole, um, although there are certain advantages in the Washington system in that um, people move in and out of government much more at senior levels, you know, you can be in the administration of the president and then you'll go back into a think tank or business or a university and then come back in again... Uh, I'd have to say, we saw it particularly under Trump, but anyway, it tends to be pretty chaotic, changes of administration, and the senior levels of the public service, of course, change. Uh, I think it's much better where in 
Australia on the whole public servants to a very senior level stay in place because they are serving the government of the day rather than a particular administration. My view is that the Westminster system of democracy has a great deal to commend it. Would they have seen you as a bit of an outsider having come from a, an academic background? Look, first of all, we talk about Australia as a multicultural society, but it is, I think, extraordinary that when I was the head of Prime Minister and Cabinet and I worked with Angus Houston, who was the Chief of Defence, so probably the most two most senior public administrators and had both been born in the UK. There's not many countries you would, you would get that uh, opportunity. So I think, um, look, I was mostly seen as a bit of an outsider and I think it's what gave me my strength as a public servant, to be honest, that I had come in mid-career. I came in from 16 years as an academic. I thought, well, this will be an interesting couple of years. So it never, I was never worried in a career sense what would happen if I failed because I'd always thought I'd go back into university again. Um, and so I think it was quite unusual for the Australian Public Service to have that sort of outsider come in who'd come in as what was then called a first assistant secretary in their 40s with none of that, you know, most of my colleagues were people who had joined the public service immediately after university, maybe after a degree, maybe after a PhD, but it comes straight from university. So that was a way I was, I think, always felt a little bit more of an outsider. And to be honest, it was the thing I think that gave me strength because uh, it meant that be honest, I was always, right from my first day through I finished, a little bit more of a risk taker, willing to take and manage risks. I never thought, what's going to happen to my career? How am I going to pay my mortgage if I lose my job? Um, and that's honestly why when I became secretaries and, and head of prime minister and cabinet, this idea that because then we were on contracts, you know, we weren't permanent positions anymore it would affect the advice that I gave to ministers or prime ministers was certainly from my point of view, complete bunkum. I was always happy to speak truth to power and in a way because I had that different background and it wasn't my, my whole career. I always knew there were alternatives. In all of that, I mean, you saw so much transition in the role of the Commonwealth government and um, I wonder... When were those points where you really had to stick your neck out, where it was really challenging? Um, and, and are there things that you did while you were there that you were just very proud of taking away, that you took away as being very proud of when you finished? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and there were things I wasn't. I mean, it's really important, uh, I think, and we see it now, you know, public servants, I think, have to put their hands up when things go wrong. And... Uh, when I was in PM&C, you may remember a lady I think called Cornelia Rao mm. who had been uh, kept in immigration detention uh, for wrongly. And I remember going out and speaking on that and saying, yes, we had stuffed up. But I did achieve some. Look, when I came into the Office of Multicultural Affairs, uh, I remember uh, the Prime Minister and the head of uh, PM&C, Mike Codd, wonderful person, said, well, what are you going to do? And uh, 
I thought, well, the Office of the Status of Women are bringing out a women's agenda. So I said, well, we'll develop a multicultural agenda. And <laughs> promised, oh, that's a good idea. I had no idea. What I did know was that multicultural or multiculturalism had to change. First of all, I had never known, liked the word multiculturalism because that ism at the end seemed to suggest it was some sort of social engineering uh, uh, policy. And, and I always liked multicultural as an adjective. And I had discerned even before I joined the public service that when people spoke multicultural, it was usually food and dance. And so the idea of actually introducing multicultural policies was very attractive to me. So that's what we did. And we got the first national agenda for a multicultural Australia in the late 80s, early 90s. And frankly, that still set the framework for what multicultural policies are in terms of equality and access. So that was at the start. Then, of course, when I was, uh, I did tough things. Uh, I was the Secretary of Employment Workplace Relations. I joined that department as secretary a week before the waterfront dispute. Uh, so that was a real um, testing period. Um, and then in PMNC, yeah, I think there are a couple of things that I got right. I think the way the Australian government responded to the Asian tsunami, you know, that Boxing Day tsunami, was frankly really good. And I did it over Christmas by bringing a small group of people together and talking to the Prime Minister, uh, you know, a couple of times a day. And, you know, the, the tsunami was on Boxing Day. And I think by January the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, one of those days, um, Indonesia held a major conference uh, with the United Nations of, of leaders. And we were able, within seven, eight days of the tsunami happening to then launch our biggest ever aid program, the Australia-Indonesia Partnership for Reconstruction and Development. And that was, I like to talk about that, is where you start with a crisis and it is genuine. You know, never, never miss a crisis. Um, it was Christmas. There was this whole mood of real sympathy for what had often seen this, you know, this Muslim country on our northern, you know, off our northern coast. Um, and I realised, Prime Minister Howard realised that actually this was a chance to do something really substantive, which may have been difficult in normal circumstances. Remember, the Cabinet wasn't really meeting. And so it was really decided between him, Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Treasurer, and we got this major package up. Um, I suppose another one, more minor, was when there had been the strong rumours coming out of Canada, which turned out to be correct, that the Australian Wheat Board had been effectively paying bribes uh, to the Iraq government to get our wheat in. And I think that was an occasion where I genuinely spoke truth to power and said, we needed a Royal Commission. There was a temptation from government to do some other form of inquiry. And I realised that was one of these occasions where you needed those full forensic powers that a royal commissioner has to get to the bottom. So yeah, that, that's sort of thing. And then I think just generally, I think, I'd like to think I gave some real leadership to public servants about what public service meant. 
Were there any things where, you, where there was unfinished business? Uh, there, is always, there is always unfinished business in government and therefore in public service. Uh, look, to be honest, there's always unfinished business wherever you leave, which is what the things that makes it hard sometimes to change. Um, look, I, um, I did the transition. I had always said and had alerted Prime Minister Howard about six months before the election that I did not want an extension of my contract, whatever happened at the end of five years. It was a tough five years. You really give your life to it 100%. Uh, and so that meant that I only did about four months with the Rudd government came in. But it was good that I, you know, I did that transition, which is where Australian uh, democracy works well. Uh, look, I think there was a whole lot of um, unfinished business of one of, our, I think, our great strengths is our safety net, uh, Medibank, um, the financial payments that we make through uh, Centrelink. Uh, but uh, I think still we're struggling to how, how can we provide that social safety net we need and yet not to take away agency from people, to still give them where they have, you know, that responsibility to be self-reliant if they can. And it's a very difficult balance. So unfinished business, I think really... The unfinished business is to question ourselves that why is it, and particularly if you go out to somewhere like Western Sydney, you've still got families now that are becoming third-generation welfare dependent. That tells us we're getting something wrong. It's not saying we need to come in harsher and keep... No, no we're not doing enough to support those families to get into and be integrated into the labour market and indeed, as active citizens, you know, integrated into society generally. I think that's one of the challenges we, we face. When you look around at other Western democracies, are there is there anyone else who's got that balance right, do you think? I um, think that there's much I admire in New Zealand. Now, New Zealand is, of course, much easier. It's, um, you know, uh, a unitary system, a unicameral legislature. It is relatively easy, although... Nearly always now you have to have coalition governments. But I think both the Labour government now and the previous uh, uh, Conservative government uh, have done much better than we have done in addressing these issues of welfare and welfare payments. They, what they have done, I think, is moved much more than we have been able to do at starting to say we should be looking at welfare support not as government expenditure but as government investment. And I like the work that New Zealand has done in trying to measure the costs, not just to individuals, but the cost to society and to government if you don't intervene early. You know, actually measuring. If, if you move in quickly when perhaps when children are four or five or when they come out of school at 16, 17, 18 and you move quickly to support them, then in fact they will become less long-term dependent on welfare than if you don't invest. So I think that idea of investing, uh, thinking of our social welfare, not just through the lens of social deprivation, but also thinking how we can use that to build people's strengths by investing early to reduce costs later. The um, 
I've spoken a lot to Sibyl English about this. They called mm. it the comprehensive balance yep. sheet. Mm. And it's um, back pain was a key one that I think where they started yeah. over saying early intervention on back pain of people in their 40s that then ultimately end up on disability pensions has this enormous long tail of cost. Yep. But you can solve it with interventions early and, and keep those people working so they themselves yep. are have agency but also are not a, a financial fiscal burden. Drag what is really scary state. is you can see research now that looks at what situation that three or four-year-olds are facing. Mm. For example, if they're no longer getting you know, proper parental and family support. And you can start to read their history from them of what's going to happen to them. Uh, same with people, obviously, who've taken in out-of-home care. Uh, you can start to see the, the costs. It, it, it is quite frightening. And, and that makes me think that sometimes, I'm not sure I'd call this unfinished business, but I'd say it's unfinished in terms of how we look at things. There is a temptation in health expenditure always to look at the high-techs options, you know, more MRIs, etc., and wonderful technology, and, you know, having had a quadruple bypass myself, of course I'm in favour of that, you know. But I think we have done that at the expense from some of the community health interventions we used to have. You know, uh, it was much more that you would have community nurses who both would run clinics but also would go and visit mums at home through the first, you know, couple of years of a, a baby's health. And that was so important, not just in giving advice, but, of course, they could start to see if they thought that something was going wrong and be able to intervene earlier. Now, we've tended to downplay because that, those low-tech community health, it seems to me, always loses out on funding against specialist high-tech medicine. Um, yeah, uh, my, my dad had a, a heart bypass as well, and it seemed somewhat agricultural to me. Because <laughs> the, the heart's in a... I don't know if you're aware of this, Janice, but a pretty inconvenient place to get to for a, yeah. to operate on it. Yeah, we're so, called the Zipper Club yeah. because of the way they, um, they carve down our fronts, yes. Um, that, I'm no expert in health, so this might be a, a naive question, but a lot of the things you've said seem like quite easy problems. You should be able to get an argument up for why we should have that sort of earlier intervention or that more community-based yeah. piece. So why hasn't... Why are, we, why are we highlighting New Zealand because it seems to be the one standout place where it's yeah. been done? Well, look, I, there is no doubt at all. And, of course, we saw it acutely as we responded to COVID um, that there may be benefits to our federal system, uh, you know, that it allows different states and territories to be innovative and then hopefully spread best practice. I know the theory. But we also know that there are very significant costs attached. And that's particularly where administrative and financial responsibility is divided between the Commonwealth and state governments. So that makes it difficult. Uh, I think the fact that we only had three-year terms in Australian government makes it difficult. I always used to think as a public servant, you, you've almost got one year to really help the government get up to speed. You've got one year 
to get things done and then one next year you're looking at the next election. You know, that's difficult. Uh, I think it's always difficult if to tackle issues that are longer term in perspective. Of course, climate change is the classic example. But even some of these health and welfare reforms, you have to take a longer term perspective. There are lots of interested parties. Uh, you're never going to have a win-win-win solution. There are always winners and losers. If you're putting more money into community health care, it means there's usually less uh, a, for the high-tech end because there are finite amounts of public funds to be spent. So all of that makes it, it, makes it very difficult. Um, and there is always that temptation to have relatively narrow short-term policy interventions because they're easier to get up. The other thing, and I wrote a report on this called Learning from Failure a few years back, that we have not done well, nor should I say that private sector has necessarily done well often on you know, implementing big major projects. Think of the ASX actually recently on their, you know, their new move to a platform which you know, completely failed. So it's not just the public sector. But I think public services and governments tend to be particularly bad at testing things before they roll them out at a state or national level. Now, I don't think robo-debt was a particularly good policy. But let us say we are having a meeting to discuss, are there ways in which we can reduce the amount of people being overpaid through government transfer payments in Centrelink? Well, if this is it, <laughs> the first thing you would do round the table, I think, is to start, well, how should we do this? Well, first of all, <laughs> as we know, you find out if you need to make any legislative changes. <laughs> which wasn't done. Um, but also, I think you think, well, hang on, what are the potential problems here? I would have thought it takes about 47 seconds to think there may be a problem at trying to compare annual tax income statements from fortnightly income being earned by people who are coming in and out of the labour market. So that's going to be a problem. Putting all that aside, here's the lesson. We could have done all of that if we decided, well, let's see if this works. Let's try this out in two or three areas. Let's choose a metro, a couple of postcodes, and let's try a regional centre, and let's try a rural remote centre. And we will try it out there to see if it works and what are the problems that emerge. And you would make sure that everybody who's subject to that can get through to a phone call to talk to someone instantly. You'd put in the resources and you'd test it. And if it doesn't work, I would say in this instance it almost certainly doesn't work, then you would fail quickly and put it away. If you think, well, it may work, but we've got this wrong, let's adapt it, then let's adapt it. But that seems to me one of the greatest failures in government and public service, that unwillingness to trial things, to do a genuine demonstration, to learn from that, and only then to scale it up and roll it out on the large scale. Well, you know, if you think about it in the Rudd government, and this is one of the reasons I wrote that report on major projects, we did it with a home insulation program. Uh, you know, tragic cost. Again, we could have trialled that 
to work out what were the problems. Um, it would have been very clear to us, even if you hadn't foreseen it, that uh, there's a problem with behavioural psychology. Um, if you're giving something free to people and it's up in the roof, on the whole, most people, if the governments are paying and you're being told they'll put insulation up in the roof, you don't bother to go up there and inspect it as the same way you would do it if you were paying for it yourself. And that's happened. A lot of people just never looked. You know, they'd been told that they'd had the insulation put in correctly. They didn't bother to check. So, you know, those are things I think are particularly issues that all governments need to address. And that's where I would say we can learn from each other, but we're all making challenges. You know, Ireland, the UK, uh, Canada, um, New Zealand. Canada is the one that's most interesting, of course, because it is like us, you know, a federal system. You've referred to that in a number of different ways. And I know with your recent COVID report, Fault Lines, you talked about the need for this Office of Evaluator General. So this need to be yeah. con constantly like evaluating, learning, testing, etc. Um, why do you think we do it so badly? Like, or, or, or what's the need, do you think, beyond yeah. what we're already doing? Well, I think because too often people misunderstand or simplify evaluation. Um, and partly, I suspect, we've been led there by auditors or the Auditor General, which is usually you run a program for two or three years and then there's an audit, which is often mistaken for an evaluation. So we'll do it for three years and then we'll evaluate how it's working. Yeah, the post-mortem. Well, the problem with that is the patient's already I, dead. The, the patient is yeah. dead and you've yeah. found it's a failure. So I think the first thing is to get to people understand that when you're planning something, evaluation needs to be there from the planning stage forward mm. and it's got to be consistent. And then the second thing is that governments tend to be relatively good at finding out if we used money, public funds, appropriately, but not if we used them effectively. So what an auditor usually does is say, well, did, was the money expended in the ways which were intended and was it done on an ethical basis with integrity, which is when then we get examples of, you know, uh, money not being allocated on an objective basis. Useful, okay, useful. But that is so different from evaluation is it may be we spent every dollar of this $200 million a year well, exactly as government intended. But when we look at the impact it's having, it is not having what government intended. So you need that evaluation. Is it actually delivering what the government and the public had a right to expect? In those two examples, though, like the COVID response and also pink bats, it's it's such a tension, isn't it? Though, because the the imperative is speed and coverage, yep. and and what what's the role of evaluation in a crisis situation where it's very hard to even know what the baseline to compare against is? How how do you suppose that should work? So, in the case of the COVID response, is is if we had had that Office of Evaluator General, how might it have played out differently? Yeah. So look, I think you can do some things instantly uh, and knowing that they may be wrong and you can correct them. Um, I would call them, uh, in a way, by time measures. In fact, putting aside home insulation program and probably 
another one that failed was the Building the Education Revolution program. But on the whole, the way that the um, Rudd government responded at Ken Henry's advice when we faced that economic downturn and the global financial crisis was good. We got out money quickly. I would say in um, COVID, we did the same. I think making a decision to get money out to people quickly um, through JobKeeper and expanding JobSeeker, absolutely. Look, you, you can fiddle around the end, but, the, but there are other things you need time to think about uh, to get right. With COVID, it's the classic instance. I have no criticism of the fact that the government, the Commonwealth government, moved in quite quickly to shut down borders and that governments went to lockdown. I'm frankly more critical of border closures internally. But all of those, let us say, what is the advantage of that? That's not going to get rid of COVID or deal with COVID. You know? <laughs> Even China's discovered that now. All that does is buy you time. So yes, do it. Lockdown. But then, then use that time to get hold of vaccines, to get hold of rack tests, uh, to set inside a contract tracing uh, system, you know, to work out how you can keep schools open safely. That's my criticism of what governments often did during COVID is to rely on a short term measure for a long term. It became the solution rather than having time to develop more effective solutions, which we were slow at. Um, I'm <coughs> So on balance, I agree with what you said, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yeah, sure. we, we had um, Andrew Barr on this podcast, and he said during that COVID period, and of course he was in National Cabinet at the time, he said, I was presented with a series of bad options. There were All of the options were bad, and I knew there'd be mistakes. To, and then someone would come along after the fact and tell me with 20-20 hindsight which one I should have done, and it inevitably wasn't the one I did. To, to, to what extent do you think national cabinet premiers could have made better decisions with the information they had available so at the time? So I and my colleagues, and that my colleagues include, include another very prestigious ex-public servant, Peter Varghese. So we are very clear in our report that we're not trying to point the finger mm. of blame. Uh, on the whole, I think we would be willing to say, and I've made it very clear, I personally would be willing to say, that I cannot say to you right now that in the fog of the initial war against COVID, I would have given different advice or made different decisions. Probably on one, I am pretty confident I would have, and that's school closures, because all our planning for a pandemic outbreak had shown us that there are real costs to shutting down schools, economic costs, social costs, mm. mental health costs, which we're seeing playing out now. We didn't just discover that now. We knew going into this, uh, and the early evidence was very clear that children were not getting COVID in a way that, in general, that you know threatened their mortality or mm. was severe, nor that they spread it. So on that one, I'd say I probably have given as many that did at the mm. time, incidentally. Uh, Commonwealth public servants did give advice not to shut yeah. down schools. But I'm not saying that overall. What I find frustrating about the response, however, is, yes, yes, it is easy to be you know, wise in hindsight, but you're only wise in hindsight 
if you go back and look at it. Otherwise, you're not wise at all. My answer to politicians is not, you know, you say, well, we, we got everything right. That's complete nonsense. Can you imagine being in any organisation? Can you imagine PwC looking back over the last three years and saying we got everything right? It's a complete nonsense. Why would we expect to get it right in something which was so unclear as COVID? Janice, did you get everything right? No, (laughs) (laughs) No, I never get everything right. You know know what I mean? But the key is to learn from (laughs) it. And it's so different. I was in Singapore a couple of weeks ago. And Singapore knew that I was going there, and so I had a meeting with their chief public health officer mm. and wanting to talk to me for a couple of years about that Fault Lines report. Mm. Okay? And what was, and, what was uh, their response? Because, uh, well, I found it interesting, agreed mm. with a lot of it, not with everything, but yeah. why? Mm. Because they're already finalising their planning for the next one. And they are looking, not just in Singapore, they're looking around the world, including Australia, to get it right. Mm. Frankly, sorry, do we see that happening in Australia? Anywhere. Mm. And that's what we're getting wrong. The other area I found striking, this isn't with the benefit of hindsight. You'll recall all of us in those early days talking about flattening the curve. The initial objective of of things like lockdowns and social distancing was in order to buy you time to get ventilators and find a vaccine and find PPE and all the things. But all of a sudden, because to an extent we were quite successful at it, it actually became about zero COVID, not about lengthening the amount of time you had. Is that it? I guess my point is we lost sight of the original reason we did that rather than... Yes, or the objective evolved, didn't it? It did. I think, well, I think unfortunately we failed to see that lockdowns and border closures were things to buy time to do all these others. And that, I think, is probably why the Prime Minister was so roundly criticised later for this is not a race. Um, You know, if you're closing things down, it is a race to set in place all those other things that you need to be able to reopen as safely as possible. And that is the thing that is, I think, our greatest failure. The second thing, of course, that is our greatest failure, though, is that we know well now, at Commonwealth or state level, public servants and the governments they serve know well where are the greatest dangers in society. Who are the people who are most likely to be adversely affected uh, at a time, for example, of a pandemic or, incidentally, at the time of a bushfire or a time of a flood, but at the time of a pandemic. Um, and yet, in spite of knowing that, we got it wrong. Now, this isn't um, a case of, well, that's sure goal just saying it. I have to say, the stats stand for themselves. You've got to ask yourself, for example, why migrants who came from a non-English-speaking background had age-specific death mortality four times people born in Australia or four times people born in the UK. Now, clearly, we weren't getting that right in equity terms. The same with people, uh, our First Nations people, the same with people who've got disability, the same with uh, elderly Australians, particularly those in residential aged care, the same with people, the wrong side of the digital divide. You know, honestly, we knew all this. 
So why did we struggle? It seems to me what it means is that when public servants and governments are doing their business as usual, in spite of all the rhetoric about being citizen-centric and human-centred design and working with the community and close relationships with industry or not-for-profit organisations, we didn't do that. And the other thing I think that stands out from me is how narrowly we often define expertise. So one of the good things I think that came out of COVID was that some public servants who would generally have been anonymous, <laughs> you know, the chief health officers, um, suddenly were became experts, partly because politicians knew two things. If things were going to go bad, it's better to do it on the advice of your expert. And secondly, frankly, because they knew there was greater public trust in experts than politicians. So that was fine. But why did it take us so long to realise that when we were looking at Western Sydney or Western Melbourne, for example, that and you're looking for experts, that the experts were not community leaders who now knew how to communicate the public health messages? Why were they not seen as experts in the same way. Why was it even when we worked with industry, we sort of thought their expertise was so narrow. So we would talk to um, people from business and industry about logistics when we thought we weren't getting food on shelves. But that's what we thought they had their expertise in, not a broader expertise. So we've got to get that right now. We've got to get serious uh, that public administrations and the governments they serve start to see that there is expertise across society and you need to be able to work with that in business as usual because otherwise you will discover at a time of crisis you get the results that we got from COVID-19. Just going back to one of the things you said, I definitely found the report very thought-provoking and um, one of the things that stood out for me was that that on the mortality front, that people in Australia who had been born, who, who who were born in the Middle East, had mortality rates twelve times higher than an average Australian, and that that did definitely expose one of those fault lines. But the, the sort of dis discussion in the report about the weaknesses in Australia's social insurance systems um, was really stark on some of the issues around casual workers, migrants, and some of those early spreading events by people who were working a back-to-back -back shift at a quarantine hotel and then at a pizzeria or, you know, and I just, what, what do we take from this? And particularly well, for those groups who don't get championed very much in policy debate. We, I suppose all of us on the panel would probably have, you know, the different uh, most egregious failures. I think this one would be top of the list for me. Uh, it was as if we didn't know that our migration program had been transformed in the previous decade. You know, when I came to Australia in 1972, uh, we also used to say, well, it's great, we're not like Germany. Uh, we don't have temporary workers. Well, of course, in the 10 or 15 years before COVID, that's exactly what we had. More and more of the people coming here were temporary workers in one regard or another. Now, to say to those temporary workers, as the Prime Minister did at one stage, go home, is not the answer, <laughs> not least because it was quite unrealistic to be able to go home. 
and not to then give them access to JobKeeper or at least enhanced job seeker arrangements was, um, the, the, I think the end results of that were so obvious because if you've got people who are temporary workers who can't get back home, um, they will keep working even when they will sick. They will breach lockdowns if they have to to try and get sources of income. Um, you know, it was extraordinary. Um, what can you say? Um, you know, international students. It's another example. I mean, let us remember in 2018, we're extolling the fact that international education was now our third most important export, our first most important service export. What a great thing this was. And then next year, suddenly they became a problem to us because of COVID. And these students who had been paying vast amount into our coffers become our third largest export, uh, were now left high and dry and had to have food packages provided by universities or um, charitable organisations or not-for-profits. So some of these things are, I would have to say, clear policy failures. And you'd like to think... We won't do it again. On that one, temporary migrants, by the way, it is important to look at other countries and Ireland, UK, New Zealand took a quite different approach where uh, temporary migrant workers did get access to uh, some level of government support. There was some good rationale behind them, but it, they were applied in in some instances in a particularly cruel way, You know, where we said to people who were even on a, a, a skilled working visa that they could... They could go home for their grandmother's funeral, but they wouldn't be allowed back in. Mm. That, that's got a long tail of effect on our Correct. capacity to attract And the other thing that was happening is you could go to Centrelink and get some uh, special financial assistance, but many, many temporary migrants were worried if they did, they would lose their visa. Mm. So that also uh, deterred them. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's striking about that is um, sort of uh, the, the long-term threat or risk versus the short-term mm. threat or risk from a government policy-making perspective. It seems to me that in a crisis, we focus quite quickly to what's right in front of us and try and deal with the short-term yeah. risks and don't maybe think enough about the long-term piece. With the, the recommendations you made in Fault Lines, help with just giving government advice about the long versus short? I hope they would. I, I genuinely think that, in fact, many of the recommendations are relatively straightforward and they're not enormously costly, but I think it would actually mean that we'd be unlikely to make the same uh, mistakes again. That's what I'd hope if we mm. focus on it. And then I would have thought that for example, we would hope that Treasury are looking at two key issues. One, which I think is arguable proposition that I put in the report, that we should have had clawback provisions in the money that went to uh, employers. Uh, I am no doubt, the panel was in no doubt, that that was a design fault. But on that one, I can understand the argument from the other side that if they hadn't done that, it may have meant that fewer employers would have taken it up. Mm. So let's do some work now for the next time the government has to step in on some form of crisis to see 
what we're doing now. So some sort of principles around stimulus. Principles about stimulus and about how we would apply it. Yeah. I think that would be really a, a valuable thing to do. Yeah. And just like on that issue around how to make decisions in that situation, you know, there were examples, weren't there, where we were science-led but where maybe the social or the economic outcome wasn't quite right. You know, like say on the issue around Moderna and Pfizer, you know, there, there are certain, and there were a number of examples in the report as well, where where the trade-offs between the social, the economic and the scientific weren't quite properly balanced out or weren't quite properly exposed in the decision-making. What's the lens on how that changes decision-making itself? So does it need a second pass or would you actually treat the science as being the as being the input and not the determinant? Like what what's the kind of prescription oh, coming well, out of that? I think that is absolutely uh, the case. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at pandemic or you're looking at climate change. Um, there is a big difference between scientists being able... Uh, to tell us implications, differences between vaccines, mm. or what is the likely projections of how climate is going to change over the next 100 years, okay? But people often think that that's the same as making public policy <laughs> because in making public policy, you've got to take that science and make decisions with it, okay? Everything that... You, what happened, I think, in part was... Governments were trying to say, ah, oh, well, we're making those decisions because of what scientist experts told us. Well, we know that was bunkum bunkum because, you know, uh, we know more recently the very same scientists were giving them advice on whether we should retain keeping on masks on public transport, uh, for example, and governments decided not to. And that's appropriate. All that science, in a way, gives you is the expertise. You still have to make the policy decisions. Do you try and prevent things or do you think the best way is to adapt to things, to be obvious? So sometimes it gets very frustrated that, frustrating to me at least, is you'll see a scientist being interviewed uh, with their medical expertise or their ecological expertise and moving from that expertise and saying, and the government needs to do X, Y and Z. That's nearly always wrong. The government does not need to do X, Y, or Z. The government needs to do, make choices on the basis of that evidence that is before them. And we need to make that, I think, clear. Uh, that essentially, when I was a public servant, and people would say, well, you give advice to the prime minister. You say you give it, you know, frank and fearless. Yes. So uh, you put up your advice and the government decides not to take it what do you do? Do you go back again or just leave it? And my only answer, because it would change from issue to issue, was I would see my role as making sure that a minister, a prime minister and government made their decisions with eyes wide open. Once I thought they knew, as far as I could give them, all the, all the facts, all the pros and cons, all the different alternative options, and they decided nevertheless they were going to do X, then my view as a public servant is I'd done all I could. Now my role was to implement X as well as I possibly could and to try and make sure that no one outside, no one in the media would ever know 
what my private confidential advice was. It would link, simply look as though I was implementing the, the policy of the government of the day. But it is trying to make sure that they make decisions with eyes wide open. Could we just talk about the decision-making structures a, a bit? What was your sense of, um, is National Cabinet a good idea? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I think uh, National Cabinet, you could see that I think most Australians were really relieved when they heard there was going to be a National Cabinet. Mm. But unfortunately, I think their expectations were probably too high. I think for many people, they thought it would therefore be almost like a national government, but a national cabinet. And then they got disillusioned when not too far in, they started to realise that each uh, chief minister came out and said different things about how they were going to interpret the meeting and what they were going to do. I still think that a national cabinet has value compared with uh, uh, COAG. I think it has the potential to work and I'm pleased that the uh, Albanese government are keeping it in place. But I think we have to be realistic about what it can do and how it can work. Uh, there is nothing as frustrating to state premiers and chief ministers and to their public servants as to be going to meetings with the Commonwealth when they're getting papers the night before or, you know, and, and feel like they're being pushed into taking decisions. And unfortunately, that's what happened too much as COAG, uh, sorry, as the COVID went on, as the pandemic went on. And I think people became disillusioned with what National Cabinet can deliver. I hope with business as usual, um, we can show that it can work uh, relatively effectively. And you can see the way the Prime Minister is trying to use it uh, right now on energy, of trying to come to solutions which state governments of varying political persuasions can come together and work to and come to a different position, which may be a different position to their, um, their uh, national counterparts who are in opposition. Uh, I think it has, I, I do think it has potential, but we need to be able to use it well uh, at a time of business as usual where both sides think that they are contributing to the decisions that are taken. Um, just more broadly than that, you've mentioned, um, you've mentioned three-year terms, you've mentioned internal border closures. Mm. Um, I'm, I might add in um, citizenship of parliamentarians mm. uh, as a challenge. Do you think there's some issues that need tidying up in the constitution? Uh, I think there are some things that need to be addressed, but not all of them, I think, required constitutional change. Mm. There's quite a lot require uh, legislative change, which you can do. Um, I think you can do quite a lot uh, administratively. Mm. There is nothing to stop any public service right now conscientiously trying to say, well, how in our various areas can we really build up uh, better forms of collaborative government with industry or with not-for-profits? There is no reason. You don't have to go and change the constitution mm. in order to get up and evaluate a general. So a lot you can do to improve the way that the constitution works. Look, mm. You know, the Constitution was designed at a particular time. Uh, the reality is, you know, on the whole, as we know, it's difficult to get through referendum to 
change the constitution and we're going to live with the the system we've got. We think now, well, if this was, you know, 2023 coming up, would we design a different system? Well, we could have interesting discussions. I think we might. You might have a national system of government and a larger number of regional governments and just have two tiers of government, for example. It's no use spending much time on that, though, because it's not going to happen. So we have to learn to use the federal system we've got. Do you, um, the internal borders, I think there, there's got to be something tied up there. There was a circumstance where one state government at one period of time wasn't letting us move defence forces around the country and refused entry to the Prime Minister conceptually. Surely that, you know, when the next crisis comes, whatever it is, we've got to have a circumstance where we can move people around the country yeah, freely. Yeah, but, you know, if you tried to change the constitutional basis for when states can put up their own borders in a health crisis, and remember it is in a health crisis, uh, my guess, well, I don't think any government's, Commonwealth government's going to do it, and I doubt it would pass. What you hope, therefore, is that you can come to effectively um, administrative understandings that you won't do this or you will not do it in that, you know, hard and fast law. You, you know, it's as if governments thought that you could not have um, adaptable and empathetic uh, mm. responses to this. Now, well, I, except I, for I AFL to, players. You know, well, and, yeah. and Hollywood celebs. That yeah. was the problem. Yeah. And, and it was the same with, with it, at the Commonwealth level. I mean, the fact is it became pretty obvious that if you wanted to go overseas for business, you were able to get a visa to go and return. But if you wanted to go overseas because your mum had two weeks to live, it was impossible. Now, what sort of system is that? So whatever we do, I hope we can understand that there can be much greater, much greater empathy, but also much greater transparency. You know, particularly at a time of crisis, transparency is crucial. Why did we make these decisions? Why did we change these positions? People didn't understand. You know, at the start of pandemic, we're being told, oh, well, don't bother to wear masks because if anything, they could make it worse by giving you a false sense of security. And six months later, we're saying, wear a mask at all account. Nothing wrong with that. Where was the person coming up to say? Oh, and we're saying this because we got it wrong at the start. We didn't realise how much of it was aerosol-driven. And because of that, we're now changing... It's as if you don't want to say we're changing our position and this is why we're doing it. That's what we need to do. I mean, I think you could look at, I, I think I remember looking at some data on this because the, the internal state borders closures probably did help with that second wave in terms of stemming the yep. spread. But it, to your point and the point well made in the report, it was once you do that, it, it's quite a blunt instrument. Like when, how, do you, how do you use that immediate uh, disruption to do other things and get other things in place to restore what, you know, what should be a sort of open border system. Um, I, I just wonder whether in, in all of that, you know, uh, with that and also the, the sort of uh, uh, changes that happened with international students and international migration, whether you fe feel that that has had any lasting impact on Australia's place in the world you know, is it likely to affect us as we go forward in terms of the way we are seen by other countries mm. as a destination of choice for migrants? Yeah. Uh, well, I think Australia will remain attractive, but I do think it's had a detrimental impact 
on our global image. Um, you only have to, to take an example, look at social media about you know what Indian students, for example, are saying about Australia. With less force now than six months ago, but are really seeing us almost as uh, pariahs. Now, that doesn't mean that students won't want to come to here, although after an initial recovery in international student numbers, I think we're starting to get concerned that they're not coming back in the numbers we suggested. But I think that, you know, it does have that impact. What concerns me almost more, though, is what we're learning from this, so that, for example, we should be having a public discussion now, not about whether we restore migration. I think everybody thinks we've got to restore migration or the numbers. Well, we can argue about that. But do we think we've got the balance right between permanent migrants and temporary migrants? This is a really big issue. Um, I think the level of temporary migrants uh, essentially um, probably surprised people when COVID took place because people don't know when you're here whether you're temporary or not. But that, in a sense, was a big policy decision which we never had a real public debate about. I think it's time to now. If we're returning to larger numbers of migrants, what is our expectations? Similarly, I think we've got to have a discussion about international students. Is it just that we want them to come here and study for three or four or five years and go home? Or do we want to make it very clear that actually this is a pathway to permanency and a very good pathway in the sense that you produce people who've got Australian education qualifications, they can find out whether they like living in Australia, we can know if they've got into any trouble over the three or four or five years. But again, it's not clear. Is international students to be part of the migration policy or not? We need to be very clear about that because otherwise, of course, what you've got is people coming here often in the hopes that this is a pathway but not knowing very clearly if it is and if it is what you need to do in order to have the certainty that if you do X, Y and Z, then you will be able to convert to permanency and then to become an Australian citizen. Yeah, I think that um, that, that pathway is to permanency and that kind of this is not migration, it's importing future Australians. There's got to be a zone of agreement in there between unions and business and, and public sector that, that that works, that's what we want. Okay. Um, just on your point, Janice, about it, the negative side of the ledger, I, when I um, left Heathrow 13 or 14 years ago, the last thing I said to my mum was, um, don't worry, we're only 24 hours away. Um, and for two years, that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if I was there now, that that would be a drag on my willingness to to come to Australia. Uh, because I think it that was is a... right, except when I came in 1972, I remember you would try and book a two-minute phone call <laughs> with your relatives back in the UK or elsewhere, you know, on Christmas Day. You know, that mm. was a big thing. You didn't. Yes, you could get. You could fly there if you had the money in 24 hours. Mm. In a way. Of course, with you know, you can go on and have a, a, a FaceTime discussion or a, you know a Zoom discussion with your family like that. Now, in a mm. way, that's become yeah. much easier. It is also, I think, more challenging in terms of integration of migrants 
into society. When I was developing the National Agenda for a Multicultural Australia, one of the key parts of it was to help to fund and develop SBS, and particularly, incidentally, SBS radio, so that people for the first time could really be hearing things in their own language. Mm. It's been a remarkable success. But much of that information wasn't just telling them... Well, first of all, we were always being delivered by Australians at the microphone, and it wasn't just about their home country. It was about things going on in Australia. Mm. Uh, and people used to talk about ghettos, which never, the you know, the Italians in Leichhardt or the Vietnamese in Cabramatta. But you were always pretty confident that, yes, people would live together for that period, but usually the second generation start to move away. I think you've got a much greater problem now with what I once heard Stepan Kerkasherian called digital ghettos. Because what it does mean now is you can come from a country overseas and for $55 a week have a dish in your garden and be listening to a non-stop diet of uh, TV from the country you've left. That is... That is in fact, much more challenging that people live in the same locations together because it's much harder to get that integration process going when people, all of their information is yeah. coming from their home country. That's why we have such a high listener base in London for all the Australians have left the Australian infrastructure <laughs> sector and listened to this podcast to get their infrastructure fixed. <laughs> Should we talk about Western Sydney? Let's talk about Western Sydney. So, Peter, you recently stepped down from being Chancellor of the University of Western Sydney and I, I thought it was quite funny. I'd done LinkedIn. my three-year, four-year oh, yes. term, so I couldn't yes. stay... Longer, I see, so I, I did see. my 12 years, yeah. Well, I, I noticed on LinkedIn that David Borger referred to you as, as the Ash Barty of chancellors. Yes. <laughs> you left it just at the point, point where we it was we, really We will become off. number one in the Heart Times <laughs> Higher Education rankings for the Sustainability Income. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the Ash Barty of chancellors. I, I rather like that. <laughs> um, what what did your time as Chancellor mean to you? Like, What, what did you see? I just think mm. there's so much happening in Western Sydney what was it? What was? What are the highlights for you? Well, I think the role the university has played in transforming Western Sydney, and that goes back to the role it's played in seeing that education, higher education, but all education, is the essential ingredient of equal opportunity. If you want to keep this a socially mobile, fair-go society then it seems to me the number one key thing is that access to education is available to all, no matter where they come from, what their families do, etc. And Western Sydney is that, of course, uh, writ large. You know, the interesting thing about Western Sydney, and I've done this as an experiment, I've sometimes talked to Americans or people in the UK and said, so I'm going to tell you about the area my university's in. This was an area that in the 1970s was a booming area of small to medium manufacturing enterprise. But because of government decisions on opening up Australia and becoming part of the global economy, couldn't survive against global competition. So to a very large extent, the economic basis of what was Western Sydney has been destroyed. And now, now we have a situation that this is the area that most uh, migrants go to 
and settle. And to a very large extent, they are people who come from non-English speaking backgrounds, refugees, even asylum seekers. So this is an area where, you know, over 40% of the people who live there have been born overseas and over two thirds have at least a parent born overseas. Now I tell you, if I say that, they know what Western Sydney is. It's rust bucket territory. Mm. You know, their image is of this broken down area, you know, where migrants settle, but where industry has been destroyed. What's the extraordinary success story of Western Sydney is that hasn't happened. You know, it went through a really difficult period, but you see it now, and I don't want to exaggerate it, but we know it's booming. We know it's the third fastest growing economy in Australia. We know, I think, we've got about 2.6 million people living there at the moment, going up to you know, 3.6 by 2040, uh, and it is transforming, partly because of a new area and construction and building, lots of infrastructure, but increasingly retail, uh, commercial, you know, white-collar jobs. Now, we know there are problems remaining, but it hasn't become what people imagine. And the university, the university's been an absolutely key part of that. But in my view, it's been a key part of it in not one way or two ways. It's been part of it educationally because we have always had that strong mission, a very distinctive mission as a university, that we are an open university, open to all with the ambition and the drive mm. to get into university. We've really made that over 33 years, what distinguishes? And we, we ha as we've got better and better at our global rankings, at teaching and research, we've never let go of that. So that's what most people see. But the other second part of it is, at the start of my term, so I'm talking back here, 2011, 2012, actually, we launched a program called Western Growth. And that, in a way, you could say is an infrastructure program for Western Sydney, um, where we decided that we needed to become an anchor institution, not just educationally, but in placemaking for Western Sydney. Um, the one thing we had as a university, we didn't have lots of rich alumni and deep philanthropic pockets, you know. The one thing we had was land that we'd been given from all. And so our task was to make higher education into an asset class and use the land we'd got to invest in education for the next 50 years. So by making places and building up a corpus through that effort. So, you know, we then moved into three city centres, started at Parramatta, then of course in Liverpool, just a week ago in Bankstown, mm. you know, with vertical campuses, high tech, right in the middle of those Western Sydney cities. Mm. Now I've got to tell you, I don't want to say that I had brilliantly foreseen all this. I did not know when we started this process hmm. 10 years ago, how important our infrastructure investment made for educational purpose and to build us a corpus for education for the future. I did not know how important it was going to be in making places in Western Sydney. But what I've come to realise is to have a really high-tech university campus at the dead centre of those new and emerging cities absolutely changes the balance from, you know, commercial, retail, residential. It adds something quite different. It then attracts 
so that, you know, we build our building in Parramatta Square. And I think that helped to influence NAB Bank to build a commercial headquarters next door. And for Parramatta Council to build it, go in there, the new chambers and a brilliant new library and civil society. And, you know, Sydney Water was there before, but other commercial coming in. PwC coming in. <laughs> but I yes. think what happens then, and of course, if you think about making places, it's starting to change the dynamics in first ways, two ways. You're starting to get much greater collaboration between the university mm. and business. And by having students in that mix of people using that public realm, you're starting to transform that sense of public space. So I think that's been far more of a profound impact than I had imagined when I started as Chancellor. And they're positioning well, aren't they, with the Aerotropolis and, you know, with a great deal of other sort of uh, economic development kind of moving into the area. What, what's the, like, I, I recently was in Bankstown looking at that building. I think it's sensational. Um, what What's the next stage of development for those campuses? Like, so how do they start to, um, you know, service you know, what is a, a sort of an emerging economy out there? So, number one is you have to make sure that those campuses do a n number of things. The fact that they are there and look so good actually says to people in Western Sydney, oh, university is one of my options and I've got high-class universities mm. here in Western Sydney. The second thing is you can make sure that those campuses are open to the community. One of the great things in the uh, Naranara campus at Liverpool is how many year 11 and 12 students come there after school to do their mm. homework and work together in that building mm. and their mums and dads like it. It's a safe place to work right next to, you know, Westfield. Mm -hmm. um, so that also is an important impact. And then, of course, like the building at One Parramatta Square, um, you have an area that is, frankly, is booked out almost all year round now because it's a very nice space for businesses and community organisations to book to do, book to do things. So the university becomes part of the community and not just a campus designed for the students who go there. Um, I feel like we could probably keep talking all day, but alas, we uh, we're coming end of our to the end of our time together. Um, we always ask all of our guests the same closing question, and I feel like I I know what the answer is because we include education as infrastructure. But what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why? <laughs> well, I will preface it, but it is going to be educational infrastructure. But having said that, I believe that the decision to build a second airport, non-curfew airport in Western Sydney has been frankly transformative, including for the university. That was a major decision. And of course, what you now see is all the road and rail infrastructure that is growing. It's still going to be a challenge to build that city of the future, the aerotropolis around it. But I think it is a genuinely transformative piece of infrastructure. And when you look at places like Schiphol, 
airport in the Netherlands or Dallas in the United States, for example, you can see the way an airport almost becomes the centre of a city around it. Um, so I think that is the single most important piece of infrastructure in Western City. But I do think education uh, is frankly important, but innovative education. And I don't just mean making sure that it has the highest tech. Go in those buildings now and you won't find any lecture rooms, for example. They're rooms where groups of 60 to 140, 150 people can work together in small groups using high-tech gaming solutions, all, all of that. That is obviously, you know, profoundly important in terms of that, of the infrastructure you create. Um, but it is also starting to be commercially savvy in the way you do it. You know, I think back 20 years ago and the only way buildings got built at Australian universities was you'd go in the queue to try and get a Commonwealth grant to give you the capital to build a building or you'd do very well and find a major philanthropist willing to put in a big chunk of the money and name the building after them. So, uh, what we have done is really work with a quite different model where we know the value of ourselves as a piece of educational infrastructure at the middle of a city so that we can therefore get involved in the development of the vertical campuses uh, but then and then commit to being an anchor tenant for 30 years plus, significantly then increasing the value of that building and then being the beneficiaries of that development uplift and then being able from that to take money out. So not owning the building ourselves, but having very safe tenure, increasing the value and getting significant gain from the development and then putting that back into a corpus for students for the future. So it is educational infrastructure, but it's both the educational purpose and the immediate educational purpose, but also how it can really help to put you onto a sound financial footing for the future. Well, a very future-focused way to finish. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, as always, to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. If you have any guest suggestions, then please let Janice or I know. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Baronia Blow, Gabrielle Platt and Harrison Liapis from Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, with support from Fabio Menezes and John Hewlin from PwC Australia. Thank you.